0: That was awesome, ladies. Thank you. The ladies had a retreat this weekend, and this um, group of ladies was leading worship these last few days, and um, we're thankful for what God did in that retreat. We're thankful for the ladies of our church and the sobriety um, that y'all have about life together. There's a a seriousness there that is um, something to be thankful for. Commendable, lovely, praiseworthy. I want to welcome you to cross point fellowship you've probably been welcomed already unless you you came in late um, but if this is your first time or you've come a few times and this is your uh, you're just kind of getting to know us i want to um, to let you know that you, you're welcome we're glad you're here go ahead and set you at ease um, you're not going to get a hard pitch from us uh, on any sunday i don't think because there's some great churches in our community and we pray for other churches every single sunday Unless we may forget at at times, but ideally we pray for another church at the beginning of our sermon because we want God to be famous in Greenville. And there are different churches in our community that connect to people in different ways. And that is something to celebrate. That's not something for us to be ashamed of. We are not in competition with one another. We are thankful for churches in our community. And if this is your one and only visit or if this is... um, Maybe you've been visiting uh, for some time, and this is your last visit this morning. (laughs) That's okay. Man, that's really okay. But uh, my encouragement to you is, man, find a church home. There's some great churches in our community, and walk with the people of God. Well, let's start with prayer. We're going to pray for Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, It's right down the road. I guess I have my cardinal directions right. Uh, Down there by the um, L3 runway, they have a new pastor. His name is Travis, and his wife is Kaylee. And I want to pray for this church and pray for Travis and his family this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the many churches in this community. We are thankful that you are being enjoyed in so many different settings right now. uh, Through so many different mouthpieces. Uh, Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ this morning in our community. And pray specifically, Lord, this morning for Fellowship Bible Church. uh, For Travis and Kaylee. Thankful that you have called them to this community. Thankful for the chance to get to know them a little bit already. Lord, I want to just pray that you would use him for your glory. First of all, in his, in his marriage and his family. Lord, that, he would, um, that his wife and his family would have dibs. Uh, that, that he would um, give them his first and his best. And that, Lord, in that, that you would give him ample, um, I guess, uh, goods to minister to the people of God at Family Bible Church. Fellowship Bible Church. Lord, we are thankful that we um, have um, opportunity to bump elbows with these folks, that we work with them, that we know them, and we um, have a chance to enjoy Christ with them in our community between Sundays. This morning, Lord, we pray that they are really enjoying you. I pray that they will be equipped for um, a work that will result in a salty, bright, and aromatic people leaving at noon today and deploying into their workplaces or their homes are there communities, and I pray the same thing for this church this morning, Lord, that you would equip us, that we would see that we're not here just to get our church on, not to get a check in a block, but that we're actually being equipped to go do and be, and Lord, I pray that that will happen this morning. Thankful for the message, just thanking you for what you've encouraged me with this week. I pray that it will equip your people this morning for your glory, in Christ's name, Amen. Turn to Genesis chapter two. I'm going to have you a few places this morning. Uh, this this morning's message is about, I think it's really a hopefully a ministry to you and your busy lives. Um, Christy and I, our our kids are are getting older and getting to the point where we have one off in college now, one that's talking about college and looking at colleges, and uh, one that's still in the throes of, um, I guess, middle school and. Coming up on high school, but we're kind of moving out of the stage of life, moving in the direction of having our kids leaving the house. But it hadn't been that long ago since we were in the throes of busyness, like most of many of y'all. Just because your kids move away doesn't mean that things get less busy. But I, man, I know exactly what it's like for a lot of you this time of year, especially as you move into the the uh, away from the winter and into the spring. Things get going in school. There's all kind of crazy activities that kids can be involved in these days. There's DI, which I don't know what DI stands for, but it sounds like busy to me. Is what it? I just look at lives, and I'm like, man, these guys are like juggling grenades, just trying to keep it in the middle of the road. Uh, soccer. Our kids were in soccer, and what a relentless schedule soccer was. I mean, I think the the busiest maybe our lives ever were where we were in the throes of soccer season. And also some of the coldest days I've ever spent in my life were on that soccer field out there. So I, I know you guys are busy. There are all kinds of sports. is robotics. Man, as if stuff's not busy enough, let's come up with something altogether crazy and build some robots. Man, robotics. I, I keep asking these guys to build something for me to like take care of my chores, like something I could say, go take out the trash or tend to the laundry or something like that, not like I'm big on that. It's usually Christy. I don't want to give the impression that I do all that kind of stuff. But it'd be cool to have a robot make something for a purpose. But man, robots or robotics are busy. Man, those guys are busy. I get it. Work, you guys are coming off the holidays where I realize your work is probably a lot like everybody else's work. You kind of get behind over the holidays and then you get back in there and everybody's like, go, go, go. We got to get this project done. You guys are busy. So this is, in some ways, a standalone message. I typically move through a book, as does Scott and Brad. I'll be moving through Ephesians here in a couple weeks when we move back, or when, when, when I'm back in the pulpit again two weeks from now, I'll be back in Ephesians. But this is a standalone sermon for busy people. I want to help you in your busyness. So this sermon this morning is about Sabbath and how the people of God can find a Sabbath rest. I'm going to have you turn to a few different places over the course of the morning. I'll share with you sort of a big picture map. We're going to gather up six principles on the Sabbath this morning. So you'll know where you are in the flow of the morning by, by identifying the principle as I identify it for you. Okay? The first one comes from Genesis chapter 2. Uh, actually, the first principle comes from another pro- Passage, but Genesis chapter 2 introduces us to the concept. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. First of all, it's important to establish that work is as old as creation. God worked creation week, and he made Adam for work. Work is as old as our world is. And God, it's important to identify right off the bat, not needing a moment of rest. God doesn't get tuckered. God was not tired. He modeled for us rest. And it's interesting to point out that he did this before anyone was truly busy. It's a proactive concept. Right off the bat, we see that he's built this into creation. He set one day aside per week. One-seventh of the week as a day for rest. And he called this day holy. That word means consecrated. It means set apart. He set this day apart as special and called it holy, consecrated it for rest. Though he didn't need it, he modeled for us rest. Now turn to Exodus chapter 16. The rest of Genesis is completely, I would say, you may see glimpses of this rest day throughout Genesis, but for the most part, it is undeveloped through the rest of the book of Genesis. That Holiness is also undeveloped through the rest of the book of Genesis. So right up here, we, right at the beginning of Genesis, we see him consecrating and setting apart this day as holy. And then we don't see it again until the book of Exodus. You see the word holiness come up where God says, you're standing on holy ground. This is consecrated ground that's set apart. You see some other occasions where he says there's something going to happen on this holy mountain, and I want you to be identified as a holy, consecrated people. But it's not till chapter 16 that he begins to develop again this concept of rest, as a Sabbath type of rest. Let's look at chapter 16. I'm going to read the first five verses and then pick up again in verse 13. They set out from Elim. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. Let me tell you just briefly where we are in the story. The nation of Israel has gone through the Exodus. They've been delivered from Egypt at this point. Okay, they are moving toward Sinai, where they will receive the Ten Commandments. They're in between, in the, in the storyline, they're in between the Exodus and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." These guys are officially hangry. No doubt about it, they're hangry. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather Daily. A beautiful picture of building in daily dependence on God here. The only day where they didn't have to um, depend on God was, is on Friday, where they had a double portion where they can enjoy God in Saturday. It's a beautiful picture of Sabbath. Let's see where this story goes. Beginning in, uh, continuing on in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. <clears throat> and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the, of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Okay, you just kind of have to enjoy the comedy of this thing. This thing shows up from the sky overnight, and they go out, and they're like, what is this? It makes me think of a Steve Martin skit years ago. What is that over there? What is that? I mean, they're looking at it, and there's this one guy who says, I know what it is. And he says, Shut up, Fred. We don't know what this is. Nobody's ever seen this thing before. It's just shown up on the ground. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer, which is about two quarts, two liters, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, (laughs) the greedy ones, and then some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. It's pretty cool about God that he built that leveling into this. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. It was probably Fred, the same guy. He didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. All right, think about that. Overnight, the guys that are hoarding and trying to keep some of it to the next day, it bred worms. That's just nasty. I mean, just let, just take it in, and it smelled bad. All right? And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. This is the first time that it's really developed since the Genesis account where God rested. Tomorrow will be a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it didn't stink this time, and it didn't spoil, and there were no worms in it. And Moses says, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, probably Fred again, but they didn't find any. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. All right, this first little picture that we have is the picture of God feeding a grumbling, hungry, hangry people, and he provides food for them from the sky in the most unlikely of ways, i.e., from the sky. And he connects this food and this provision to this development of Sabbath rest by giving them an ample provision on that Friday as they gathered to prepare for the next day. An ample, non-spoiling provision. So here's the first Sabbath principle. Ready for you note-takers? Holy people. Remember, he's already identified this people as holy, like the day. Holy people... Rest as we acknowledge God's provision. That's what he wanted them to do that day. Rest and acknowledge God's provision. When you have a roof over your head, and as far as I know, and I don't know every single one of you, but as far as I know, all of you have a roof over your head. I don't know any of you that are going without meals it could be possible, and if we find out about it, we're going to attend to that. But for the most part, I think every, everybody in this room has a roof over their head, has food on the table, has clothes to wear. I know that for sure right now. I'm looking around the room. <laughs> I know the old trick to make you set at ease when you're, pre- or when you're teaching or speaking in public speaking where they tell you everybody doesn't have their clothes on. Y'all have clothes on. I'm fine. I don't need that trick. You're wearing clothes. So Sabbath rest, the first principle, means busy people in the middle of the busyness. Rest in God, acknowledging that He is tending to you. Man, just enjoy that first one. That's a a lob. He's tending to you. If He's going to clothe the lily, if He's going to feed the bird... He's going to take care of you. Rest in that. Okay. Now, in case turn, to, turn over a few pages to Exodus chapter 20. In case the people of God missed that this was a commandment, okay, he commanded them to rest. You may not have noticed that. He commanded them to rest over there in Exodus chapter 16. And in case they just thought it was just kind of a suggestion, like a good, like maybe I need to do that. In Exodus chapter 20, he develops it more, right here in the context for the, uh, of the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's a command. Remember, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. Even the critters get a day off. Man, rest. Now here's why. The word for tells us why. The rationale at this point. For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The rationale for rest in this passage, in this context that he's sharing it here, is because God created everything, and God rested, and God commanded us to do the same. Here's the second Sabbath principle. Holy people rest because our Creator rested, and our Creator commanded us to rest. Can that be enough that our Creator said to rest? Do we have to have reasons that all benefit us in some way? And can we just consider a a, a reason that has nothing to do with our benefit, but has everything to do with our Creator told a creature to rest, and told that creature to even make sure his other critters rested? The the second Sabbath principle is holy people rest just because God said to. And holy people in that rest are to be intentional, acknowledging Him as God and Creator and Lord over His creation and His creatures and Lord over us. So in that rest, acknowledge His design for rest And acknowledge that he's God and you're not. That's good news. He's God and you're not. Now, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Over the next 40 years, they're going through the wilderness experience. And over the next 40 years, God reminded this holy people of this command to rest on this holy day. It came up a number of times over that wilderness journey. Numbers chapter 15 may be the most uh, graphic picture that we have. I'll read it to you. It's just brief. I want you to head over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. But listen to just this glimpse in their wilderness wanderings of some Sabbath talk. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, working. Okay, I bet it was Fred. It just occurred to me. I bet it was the same friend. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, don't miss this. The Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him, like the Lord said outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. There is no other commandment in the Old Testament that is more developed and more serious than Sabbath. This guy breaks Sabbath and the consequences from the Lord are death. Punishment for transgression of this um, commandment. Is death. And don't miss for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. This is a very serious, it is the most strongly emphasized commandment of the ten in our Old Testament. Okay, let's pick up in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses reminds this people of this commandment, and here he mentions a new reason. Okay, it's very similar to the Exodus 20 account. But it's different, and you got to pay attention to see what he does here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Sounds pretty similar, a little bit more detail about who should rest, but it sounds similar so far, doesn't it? But let's see what he says next. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now here he introduces, God introduces through Moses at the tail end of this wilderness wanderings. He introduces a new reason to rest and a new reason to observe the Sabbath. Here he connects the command to rest to the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. He goes into detail there about that deliverance. In Exodus, it's connected to provision and creation. In the manna account and in the first sharing of the commandments commandments there in chapter 20. To creation. Provision and creation. But here it's connected to deliverance from Egypt. It's almost like it's a recreative work. They've been recreated from the travail of Egypt. Egypt. So in some ways, it has some similarity to a creation thing, but it's connected here more specifically to deliverance. Here, as they celebrate the weekly festival of the Sabbath, they are to remember their chains. They're to enjoy his provision of manna. They're to enjoy his provision of quail, of water from a rock, and every other time he provided for them. They're to enjoy his his identity as creator But here Moses added in, there to enjoy his deliverance and remember their chains. Remember their slavery, their oppression. Remember God's mighty acts of judgment called the plagues. I can imagine what a Sabbath must have been like for them. Where maybe uh, someone who was a kid, because the first generation died in the wilderness, but maybe someone who's a kid, who's now grown up and grew up in the wilderness, is able to share with his family, man, those plagues were something else, like nothing I've ever seen young Jacob and Sarah. I don't know, I'm thinking of another Jewish girl name. Let me tell you about that hail. I saw it squish a cow like I've never seen it happen before. I saw frogs thick as thieves jumping in their beds. I saw flies and gnats that were so thick you couldn't even see. The, The Egyptians would open their mouths and flies would come in. And man, that darkness, can you imagine those Jewish kids taking that in and hearing that Sabbath for them was not just about God as creator, not just about God as provider, but also God as deliverer. Sabbath rest means enjoying God as deliverer because he did the work of deliverance. There was not a one of them could have said that they did anything to contribute to their deliverance from Egypt. In fact, there was one moment where I can imagine the Jewish father telling his kids, man, we had the armies of Egypt bearing down on us. They were to our back, and we had the Red Sea in front of us. And y'all know I'm not a good swimmer. And man, I'm facing that thing, and I'm facing this, this, this dilemma. And God said, you just be silent. And watch me do the work of opening up the Red Sea for you, so you can cross over on dry ground... And then watch me do the work of folding it in on you. Rest in that. Man, can you imagine those stories? Here's the third Sabbath principle. Holy people rest in God enjoying His deliverance. Holy people rest in God enjoying His deliverance. I can imagine that future Sabbaths for them would have been able to add to the Exodus deliverance, deliverance from the Canaanites. They fit the Battle of Jericho. Everybody knows the song? Okay, they defeated Jericho. I mean, they had all these stories. I, I could imagine they could celebrate God's deliverance from the Philistines. David takes down the giant, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, maybe even the Romans later. It may have been something they celebrated, deliverance. Man, I want to ask you this question as we consider that third Sabbath principle of considering your deliverance. What has God delivered you from? Is there anything that you can really enjoy that God has delivered you from as you find rest in Him? Now, if this was synagogue, we could go home right now. It'd be a short morning, wouldn't it? I mean, a, a Jewish, a Jewish folks should have really short sermons because that, that's all I got to offer so far. You know, we could, we could uh, I could say shalom. You could go home and eat something kosher. <laughs> like a Reuben or something. But we're Christians. So what do we do with this? Are we supposed to have some sort of day? Are we supposed to have a special day where we don't work? What are Christians supposed to do with this? We don't dismiss all those stories and that Old Testament stuff is not relevant. We treat it in some ways as something that's backstory that helps us understand where we are. So turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to consult an expert to gather up this fourth principle. And the principle that really, I think all three of, these are the, all three of those, those first principles are for us, but now it gets real surgical for a bunch of Christians. Real surgical. We're going to consult an expert. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context. The Hebrews preacher, uh, the, the title of the, the letter, okay, it's really kind of like a big sermon. The title of the sermon, Hebrews, gives you some idea that this was to a Hebrews church, okay? These are made up of a bunch of Jews. These are a bunch of Jews that would have understood those three principles and those stories, they would have known those stories well. Okay? And the Hebrews preacher, we would hope, would know those stories well and would be able to make sense of those stories and those principles through the lens of the cross, through the lens of Christ and the cross. That's what makes us Christians, so we want to look through that lens with him. Now here's what's cool about the book of Hebrews and why it's just so fitting for where we can go today. The book of Hebrews is written by the Hebrews preacher. We don't know who he was. Okay, some people think it was Paul. Some people think it was Apollos. Uh, the Hebrews preacher was writing a letter to his church, and likely they were in Rome. Okay, some, there's some clues that they were a, a Jewish church in Rome. Now, what, what was particular to the Jewish church in this context, the occasion for the letter and the occasion for the sermon, is these Jews were considering going back to Judaism. Because Christianity is kind of hard. You can understand, or you can maybe imagine, it's not hard for us, but you can imagine being a Christian in the Roman Empire would be hard. And what would even make it harder than being a Christian in the Roman Empire would be to be a Jewish Christian in the Roman Empire. Because then you're getting beat down from Jews and from Romans. Okay, so we want to look at it and understand. Life must have been really difficult for these folks. And they're considering bailing on Christianity, bailing on Christ, and going back to Judaism because it's comfortable, it's familiar. We're still worshiping Yahweh. There's lots, lots to to, to consider. That. that that might be kind of cool, actually. Okay, we're not bailing on God altogether. But here, the Hebrews preacher writes to them, and you can look at some of the headings. Look at, look at, look at. Just start at the at the beginning. Some of the headings that have to do with, right off the bat: the supremacy of God's Son. I'm just just pointing out some headings that I have in my Bible. I'm getting some feedback on this thing that makes me... I, I might get louder later and I don't want to scare anybody. No, I'm kidding. Okay, some headings here. The supremacy of God's Son. To a bunch of people that are considering bailing on Christ, he starts out and says, Oh, man, it's all summed up in the person of Christ. Jews don't bail on Christ because it's all summed up in him. The supremacy of God's Son. He's warning them not to neglect salvation. Look at the top of chapter two. Look at the top of chapter three. Jesus is greater than Moses. Hebrews is awesome because the Hebrews preacher contrasts all these things that they're wanting to go back to and says, man, they're just shadow. He's the substance. You want to go back to Moses, Moses was just a shadow of what we have in Christ. Okay, Jesus is better than Moses. Rest for the people of God. <laughs> that's where we're going to be going here in a second. A clue that he starts talking rest that's going to help us make sense of what we do with rest. But look at a few more headings. There's one over there between, or in the, embedded in chapter 4. Jesus is the great high priest. He's contrasting one after another. Jesus is better than Joshua. He does it throughout the book. Better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the high priest. It's all summed up in Jesus. Now, look what he says about rest. In some ways, we're sort of parachuting into this conversation at the beginning of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, he's speaking to these Jewish Christians, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard, he's speaking of their fathers in the wilderness... He's speaking of the, the, the time of disbelief in their forefathers in the wilderness that resulted in the first generation dying in the wilderness and it becoming a big graveyard. It's a time of disbelief. That's specifically what he's speaking of here. Good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that Rest. Now, we're getting a little clue where we're going here. We who have believed have, are enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Speaking of their unbelief. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. He just had a lapse of memory. He's probably getting old like me. He's probably in his 50s, and he forgot. That's Genesis 2, Hebrews preacher. He's somewhere spoken of it. In Genesis 2, on the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. He's connecting where we began this morning to belief and unbelief. He's connecting belief and unbelief to the concept of Rest. Let's see where he goes. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Today. Key word. Today. Saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. All right. I know this is not an easy passage. We spent, I don't know how many years, preaching, moving through the book of Hebrews. And we have the unfortunate... I think it's fortunate, but the the, the challenge of parachuting into something that's a little bit of a complex argument. Let me summarize it for you. He's he's identifying belief in Christ as Sabbath rest. Okay, let me me develop this for you. The fourth Sabbath principle. First of all, before we talk about that fifth one, here's the fourth. It's no longer one-seventh of the week. Okay, for the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, all that old, all, everything that happened before Christ, it's one-seventh of a week, right? We pointed that out right off the bat. Their Saturday was the Sabbath day, one-seventh of the week. Well, the percentage is no longer one-seventh, but has changed the side of Christ to seven-sevenths. Okay? Every day. Every day. We saw it a couple times here in this passage. In verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, today, he appoints a certain day Today, today is the day for belief. Today is the day to find Sabbath rest. And he says it again, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you look backward in chapter 3, verse 7, today if you hear his voice. In chapter 3, verse 15, today if you hear his voice, you think he's trying to make a point that belief is no longer about a single day of the week. It's about every single day for the people of God. We find rest every day. Every single day. This concept makes for a people who are not daily driven by self reliance and pride, which is so easily something that drives us every single day, but instead, every single day, are driven by dependence like manna falling from the sky on Christ. Daily dependence. It's a daily understanding that Christ is, first of all, our ultimate provision. Manna was just a glimpse. It was just a sweet shadow of what we have in the substance that is Christ. Man, He is our provision. He is our creator and sustainer. And He is our deliverer. For in Christ we find true provision as the bread that comes down from heaven, the true provision. Bread. That other stuff was just a mere shadow. He is the substance. And that Sabbath rest takes place for y'all, for me, on Tuesday. When you're in the throes of work and you're frustrated because somebody's breathing down your neck, get that project to me ASAP. And he's not the ideal boss or she's not the ideal boss. You're like, man. Or that teacher's like, give me that assignment or... You know, you're in the throes of mom and dad not understanding you because mom and dads never understand us, right? I was <laughs> your age. I get it, man. He's your Sabbath rest right there. In that moment, in that day, every day, today, he is your provision that day. In him we find true deliverance. As Colossians 1 tells us, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Already done. Done deal. We've been delivered from death to life, from darkness to light. Already He is our deliverer. Colossians also tells us, In chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When your day is coming unglued, when your week is coming unglued, when your life is coming unglued, when your marriage is coming unglued, when your relationships are coming unglued, when your checkbook and your finances are already unglued, he is the one in whom all things are held together. That's where the people of God find Sabbath rest. Amen. Amen. Man, that's good medicine right there. The fifth Sabbath principle is that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And remember, it's connected to the fourth, seven-sevenths of the time. All the time. Everywhere we go whatever we do. I found a quote by a guy named Philip Carey. It's from a book that I haven't read, but it was a good quote anyway. Listen to this. I agree with it almost completely, and I'll tell you where I disagree. Every time we turn to Christ in faith, it is like a moment of Sabbath, a little foretaste of eternal rest and glory. The gift of that moment lies not in what we do, but in what we receive. It is the holy time set aside to receive the greatest gift of God that or the greatest gift God ever has to give, which is Himself in His own beloved Son. He is our rest. I'll tell, I'll tell you where I disagree. He says the phrase, it's a foretest, foretaste of eternal rest and glory. That that gives a hint that it's kind of like a wee little. Nibble of something we're going to have in the future. That's where I disagree. I think we have that all now. Right now, it's not something we we'll really find some rest in someday when we won't need it. It's going something something you find really rest in right now in this mess when things have come unglued. When you've got news that you can't reckon with, you can't fathom, how in the world are we going to deal with this? It's in that mess that we find ample Sabbath rest in the person of Christ. Okay. Briefly develop the last principle. What does Christian Sabbath rest look like? I mean, you've got to be wondering at this point, right? You. You've heard these principles. You're like, okay, it's all coming from the Bible. It sounds good. I like it. I don't really know how to do it. <laughs> Let me help you with that. Let's consider what Jesus did on the Sabbath. I'm not even going to look at any passages. I'm just going to summarize for you. You can look through the Gospels. Some of the Gospel accounts have multiple accounts of these same events. But I'm just going to summarize five or six things for you briefly. Okay. First of all, what did Jesus do on the Sabbath? He gleaned with hungry disciples. He gathered up corn and said, here you go, guys. You hungry? Take and eat. He fed his people. He healed a man with a withered hand. That's pretty cool. Imagine what that would be like. I mean, there are worse infirmities, but that, yeah, use your hands. It's pretty important. He healed a woman who's bound down with infirmity. Like, you just imagine what life would be like if you couldn't even stand erect. Huh? He healed her. Healed her to full stature. He healed a man with dropsy. I bet very few of y'all know what dropsy is. It's an old-fashioned term for edema, like a excess fluid buildup that comes from congestive heart failure. He healed a man's heart so that his body could get rid of excess fluid. And in that occasion... When the Pharisees are objecting to this, you can, how is that even fathomable that they could object to him doing these sorts of things on the Sabbath? He said, if your son fell into a well on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you pull him out? For that matter, if your ox fell into a well, that was really Southern, whale, uh, uh, two syllables, a well. <laughs> if your ox fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull him out? Man, he gives us a glimpse of what he's doing here. He healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. His family parked him at the pool of Bethesda every day for 38 years, hoping that he would be there when the water stirred, as the legend goes, that the first person into the water would get healed. There were probably hundreds of people laying around these pools at Bethesda. And he walks up to this guy that's been lame 38 years and says, pick up your mat and walk. He healed a man who had been born blind. Man, that's good medicine right there. He helped hungry disciples. He helped a man use his hand. He helped a woman stand upright. He helped a man's heart. He helped a man walk again. And he helped a man see. He pulled people from one well after another on the Sabbath. Man, if you want to know what Sabbath rest looks like, let's just see what he says about it. This is awesome. In John chapter 5, they've been objecting to him doing these things on the Sabbath. And it says in verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he's doing these types of things on the Sabbath. And he says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I'm working. If you want to know what Sabbath rest looks like for the people of God, man, here's a great place to go. Look at Jesus. He wasn't idle. Sabbath rest doesn't mean you're idle, it doesn't mean you're a bunch of idle, sorry, lazy people. Just sitting around being saved. Here I am. Man, he's working. That's rest for him. And you know what kind of work he's doing? He's he's doing the Father's work. His argument for them was, I'm doing the Father's work. That's what's fitting for Sabbath rest, is doing the Father's work. He's not picking up sticks. He's pulling people from wells. Man, here's the sixth Sabbath principle. Sabbath rest is a working rest And a resting work. And let me even define it more. It is a cross-fueled work. A cross-fueled work. Paul's letters. I wasn't sure if I was even going to share this. But I'll give you about two minutes so you can visualize it. Just about two minutes. And then I'm going to bring you home. We'll land the plane. Most of Paul's letters are broken down into two pieces. The first half are full of indicatives. Meaning he's indicating things. The second half, and they're not always an equal half, are full of imperatives. Meaning he's saying, Go do these things. Ephesians is a great example of that. We've spent, I don't know how long in the book of Ephesians, we've gone, we've gotten up to Ephesians chapter, the end of chapter three. And now chapter 4, we begin in two weeks, begins with the imperatives. The first three chapters are all indicatives. This is, what Christ is, this is what God has done for you. This is who you are in Christ. These are all God's verbs. Three chapters full. And now over here, three more chapters, chapters 4 through 6 of your verbs. You want to know what kind of work to do? Do these verbs over here while you straddle what God has done. You keep a foot over here. It's like, what was that game? Twister. It's like Twister, man. You're going to go do something? You better keep a foot over here in the cross. You better not assume it. You better hold fast to who He is and what He's done for you. Cross fueled work is what God's people have been called to, and that is where you find your Sabbath rest. It's not in idleness. Man, some of us need a new definition of Sabbath. See, man, I need a Sabbath where I don't do anything. No, that's not a biblical Sabbath. Sabbath rest is where we are doing the Father's work and doing the Lord's work. We're pulling people from wells. And man, we'll be blessed in that endeavor. I'm preparing you. You may not realize this, but I'm in some way, I think, through this sermon, preparing you for a season of sacrifice and work. For this church. Scott hinted at it in a recent sermon. and said, man, this is a a well-equipped people. You know what would be criminal? Is if a well-equipped people did not walk in their equipment. Did not push any envelope. Did not step out and put their hand to anything that challenged them or stretched them. Did not in any way engage hard places or hard situations or hard seasons. We're entering into, as a church, a season of sacrifice and work. So I know, man, some of y'all came here just like, I'm so busy. I hoped you you were going to give me some help for all my busyness. And now it just sounds like you got more work for us to do. Maybe what I've helped you do this morning is help you reorient as where you'll really find rest. Where you'll really find some Sabbath rest is being involved in Pulling people from wells. More to follow on that. We have the supper now. I'd like to share a passage with you from John chapter 6. It's a fitting supper for where we've gone this morning. John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed the multitudes. This is the 5,000 here in in the heading in my Bible in John chapter 6. He's walked on the water, across the Sea of Galilee. You know that story where they were all scared and They thought it was an apparition, and he walked on the water. He gets to the other side, and the crowds come around him. They're like, how'd you get here? That's amazing. It's like a magic trick. They couldn't figure it out. And they ask him, how did you get here? And he doesn't even really engage them with that question. He knows why they're there. Their appetites have led them there. And here's what he says to this people, this group of people that have come there. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Listen to what he says next. Do not work for food that perishes. This verb, work, is carried over to what he, has, what he says next. Do not work for food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Man, a passage I stopped reading just stop just shy of it there in Hebrews chapter four, in chapter eleven, in chapter four verse eleven. You know we're talking about finding your Sabbath rest in Christ, and the next verse says, "Strive to enter His rest." Man, it's work to rest in the right thing, isn't it? Strive to enter His rest. Work for food that endures to eternal life. Don't be idle and call that Sabbath. Work for it, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, good question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Listen to what he says. Beautiful fourth Sabbath principle applied here. This is the work of God that you believe in Fifth, excuse me, fifth Sabbath principle. Believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work. That's the work to do. Believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? They're digesting thousands of people's worth of loaves and fishes as they ask this question. What sign do you do to show us that you're amazing? Aren't you just eating what I just fed you over there across the sea? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give Sabbath does not mean idle. If you feel like, man, I really need a Sabbath rest. I'm really tired. And you're thinking, I just want to kind of sit around and do nothing. Don't call it a Sabbath rest. Just call it, I just need an idol. <laughs> don't spell it like an I-D-O-L. But just, I just need to be idle. Just call it what it is. But Sabbath is something different. It's rest, but it's not the kind of rest that we often associate with sadness. So I hope that you saw it this morning too. Something I want to just develop, one more thing. I meant to say this. With the imperatives, or excuse me, indicatives and imperatives, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, another example is Romans chapters 1 through 11. Indicatives. This is what God has done for us in Christ. Chapter 12, you see all these verbs, and they're your verbs, our verbs. Imperatives. If you live in indicatives and there's no imperatives... You're a lazy, faithless Christian. If you live over here and you're doing all these things, but it's not connected to who Christ is and all those indicatives of what He's done for us, and it's just doing it, then you're a faithless legalist. You gotta play Twister. You gotta play Twister. And sometimes it feels like Twister, but it's, that's why I call it work. Work for things that last into eternal life. Work for food that endures in eternal life. Strive to enter his rest. It's the right kind of work. It's cross-fueled work. Man, that's what we're called to. And we'll find rest in that. I hope that encouraged you this morning. I, I maybe got the wheel spinning on, what. how can I reorient and change some things and accommodate some plans that, where I might find some rest that I'm not finding right now? You may not be finding rest right now because you may not be involved in any sort of sabbath type work. I mean, just consider that. This would be something for life groups to talk about. And this, if you're wondering what life groups do, they talk about this. They talk about our sermon and the families that are just trying to do life together, processing and accommodating and responding to what God has said through the preached word. Okay? We have a very high view of